world. Hello once again, everybody. Welcome to After Further Review with uh, Mark Ferreira and John Pelkey. I almost said John Pelkey and Mark Ferreira. You know, want to get these in. It wouldn't have bothered me, John. Would not have bothered me. Want to get these in before you retire me from the show, which apparently is is my final week here. Uh, Jeff Taylor returns us coming from uh, a. Let me let me read this. Make get it right. A paying job. Uh, uh, Help us out. What, what 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 is that? What does and that mean? What was it? I, I told Mark that when I was doing this gig the first day, I felt like there was something that I was not doing, and I realized the thing that I was not doing was nothing. It's like I have I've gotten used to doing nothing, and now it feels weird that I'm not doing nothing. I've forgotten to do nothing. Wow. Right there, there's there's a section of the day where there's nothing to do, and that didn't occur during your work hours, evidently. So you, you so you were actually working the entire time. That's kind of rare for a man in your uh, in your line of work. <laughs> well, we, we worked wow. the entire time. I landed, I went to the venue, I put my bag in my room, and I went to work. And uh, then went to dinner, went to sleep, woke up, went to work again, went to dinner, went to sleep, went to work again, went to dinner, went to sleep, got up, and flew home. That was my uh, Dang. schedule. So good for you. Good All for right. you. And, and when I say your line of work, I mean our line of work. It's a lot of hurry up and wait as a yes. rule. Yes. That, you know, uh, I was doing a radio row, and those are rarely boring. And we had to do it from – so for the first time ever, the talent – was there but the radio hosts weren't there they were all on zoom like we are right now so i had a booth with three radio stations on zoom and i'd have the talent come in and i had to mix who he was hearing or she was hearing or they were hearing and who was hearing them so it was a it was an interesting thing mask and face shield too by the way the face shield or just in case i sneezed on the computer i guess but uh you know what somehow safety Safety is the best at, at this point. If you got a, I, my whole thing is if I got a paying gig, I'll wear a mask. I'll wear a hazmat suit at this point. Just, just get me some paying work. Uh, all right. Listen, lots to talk about. Lots to talk about today. Um, first of all, uh, we're going to have Derek Abbott on in just a bit to break down three of the more interesting games of this second week of the NFL season. We're going to talk about the NBA and the NHL playoffs. We're going to wave goodbye to Cinderella. The New York Islanders, uh, sadly, and our, our good friend Barry Trotz. Uh, and uh, we'll talk in the potpourri a little about Major League Baseball. It was a hell of a day yesterday, Mark, or hell yeah. of a weekend, I should say, if you're a fan of Florida sports. Sure. If, if you're a Tampa fan, sure. my goodness. Yeah. Unbelievable. I agree. I agree. Um, the biggest day in Tampa sports since the signing of the GOAT, who apparently it's all over for, and that was a horrible signing and don't want to overreact, but uh, the, the oh, yeah, lightning moving on in the NHL, yep. uh, of course. Uh, the Rays. Really, America's fate li- lies on the backs and the shoulders of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Well, maybe. Uh, or the Tampa Bay Rays, who we can't have a team from five. Texas win. We just right. can't, especially okay. Dallas. We're right. down to president because of that town. You know this, John. I have a soft spot for the Dallas Stars a little bit. Ugh, me neither. No, no. I know. No. I know. No, no, but no. The, Tampa, the Tampa Bay Rays have clinched a playoff spot. Yep. Um, proving once and for all, Mark, I think, that it is in the top three baseball franchises over the last decade. And who would be the other two? The Yankees and the Dodgers? Um, well, I might throw the Giants 
in there. Well, the Giants won three World Series in the last decade. Yeah, I think the Giants and uh, Tampa has been pretty competitive the entire time in 08 and 09. Uh, I believe it was 08 they got to the World Series. In 09, they got to the chant to the uh, ALCS. They've been competitive. They were very competitive last year. Uh, and now they were one of the great stories playoffs. last year in a story yeah. in a year with so many baseball stories, uh, side stories. In any other year, they might have been the best story in baseball. But I just think year in and year out, the talent. And if you look throughout baseball, the guys who have come through that system, and of course they can't hold on to everybody for very long. They're a small market team. They are really the Connie Mack Philadelphia A's in a lot of, of ways the, of the 21st century. In a lot um, of ways, they are, uh, you know, they, they compete on no budget. They have to reconfigure because they don't have a budget. They lose all their guys that were producing. And now they've reconvened. You know, now they've now, now they're winning again with no budget. I mean, what, what is their yearly budget, John, for Tampa Bay, for the for the Rays in Tampa now clinching in first place in the Aleys? What's their yearly salary? Eleven thousand three hundred sixty-six dollars eighty-eight cents. Man, that's just tremendous. It's a great. It's a which is great feat. Which is eleven thousand three hundred dollars more than you and I have made in six months combined. So, combined. So if yeah. we could just hit the curveball, or if we were left-handed pitcher, we would be perfectly fine. All right. So we're going to talk about all of that uh, a little bit later. A little bit more about that and everything. Um, sports that we can fit into what I'm promising you to be. A one-hour and five-minute show, no more. Um, before we jump into Derek Abbott, who's waiting for us, let's start our progressive trivia. Let's get that out of the way because I know it's a it's a fan favorite for those people who are firing up their handheld magic machines. Because I'm pretty cons- I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. All right, looking for a major league baseball player, past or present, spent twenty plus seasons in the majors. How about that? Career numbers: two hundred eighty plus wins, a three point three one ERA, and thirty seven hundred plus strikeouts. Man, played for five teams, one World Series in both leagues. Yeah, All right. that's the one that surprised me the most, John yeah. Pelkey. This is a good one. This is a very, very good progressive trivia, and uh, I don't think I don't think people are going to get it. One of those one names. One of those names in baseball, Mark, that I think um, when he was active, his name was in the tip of everybody's tongue when talking about baseball week in and week out. And as soon as he left the game, he was forgotten for whatever reason. I think part of that having to do with the five teams. I think guys who moved around a lot, particularly, uh, and this guy is retired because it said I spent, um, particularly guys who moved around a lot in the um, 70s, 80s, 90s, before player movement was as uh, – Ubiquitous, ubiquitous as it is now. Sorry, I'm in trouble with the language. All right, as, as mentioned, we bring in our good friend, Derek Abbott, assistant coach at the Coast Guard Academy, former college football quarterback, to discuss, uh, well, we're going to have him break down three games that um, that Mark determined were the three games we should talk about. And I, I, for one, agreed with your decision on this, Mark. You had to make this unilaterally because I was busy. But these are three really, really fun games to talk about. Um, but first... Welcome to our good friend, Derek Abbott. And I have to ask you, did you watch the Battle of Ohio last night? Because it was one hell of an entertaining football game and a couple of really good quarterback performances, I thought. Your feelings, Derek? Well, thanks, guys, for having me on again. And, yeah, actually, I had the uh, I had the opportunity to watch that as I was prepping for the uh, for the show today. So I had uh, about seven screens going 
of, of different <laughs> football games I was watching and notes and everything else. Everything else the last, but, but yeah, I had a chance to watch those guys and, and, and Joe Burrow really, really impressed me. But he really, whenever he understands what he's seeing and kind of like, you know, what we talked about in previous shows and he understands the look, man, he, he is really, really smooth in some of the stuff that, uh, that Zach Taylor does. You saw them get into some five wide stuff too that you didn't really see at a lot of teams. So they were really running some of the LSU plays uh, that, that Burrow ran uh, last year. And then Mayfield really, really looked a lot more impressive than he did in week one. Some of their play action stuff really looked well. Uh, him seeing better, uh, better throwing lanes as well. So o- Odell Beckham showed up. So uh, both of them looked really well, but I thought Burrow really, really impressed me. Yeah, I thought uh, uh, Baker Mayfield did. He throwing the ball on the run, and it's funny. You just, years in this watching the game and talking to people about it, squaring his shoulders off Betty better when he did throw on the run mm-hmm. and finding open guys. He 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 really looked uh, he really looked good. But to your point, the Burrow uh, situation. I think it was Troy Aikman who was on the on the call said the thing that he saw with him in film is even in that first week that he missed some throws, mm-hmm. but he said the number of reads that were the right read that he made, even if he missed the throw, he was so impressed that a guy in his first NFL game really was reading the defense as well as he was. Yeah. He also made a lot of those, uh, those gotta have it throws on third downs um, that, that he converted. And he made a lot of plays out of structure too, that I thought were pretty impressive for a young guy. A lot of guys, you know, you get one read and then you're off to you're off running and, and looking to throw the ball away or something like that. I thought Burrow really, really stood in the pocket well, moved in the pocket really well. His mobility within it and then keeping the guys downfield to make plays and was throwing some darts too. He sort of has to move in the pocket right now. I mean, imagine if he had an offensive line, uh, it would be uh, tremendous. I saw and, someone. Uh, I saw someone tweet that uh, Joe Burrow and Sam Darnold need to go have a beer together. <laughs> I mean, seriously, in a couple of drafts, Derek, and they get they shore up that offensive line. Uh, I think their defensive line needs some help too. They need help up front. My God, do the Cincinnati Bengals need help up front? But once they do. Burrow already showing signs of being a special, special kid. It would be, be tremendous, tremendous fun to watch. And no preseason games and limited training yeah. camp. No OTAs, too. That's the most impressive thing. That just shows that offensive staffs now are so willing to adapt to, to the players that they have and the guys that they're getting from college, too. All right. So let's switch gears and move away from uh, a game with two young quarterbacks who looked good and move on to the first game that we want to talk about this week, which is two anything but young quarterbacks, uh, one of whom looked uh, really, really good. And the other who looked, I think everyone would say, surprisingly good. And that is the Patriots and the Seahawks. Um First blush on this uh, matchup, Derek, because you have both two two teams coming off of wins, both against teams that we're not 100% sure what the Falcons or the Miami Dolphins are going to end up being. Um, Russell Wilson looking a lot like Russell Wilson and Cam Newton looking like maybe the Cam Newton of three, four seasons ago. What do you see in these guys and what do you like about this matchup? Well, first, I think the biggest thing with, with Seattle is they, they finally let Russ cook. Uh, you know, we, we've been talking about that. And, you know, what a, what a performance that he had uh, with them. You know, 31 at 35, 322 yards, four, 
four touchdowns, 88% completion percentage. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So on 28 first downs, there were 17 dropbacks by Wilson. So that just shows their initiative to throw the ball on first down and kind of get them into more advantageous second and third downs as well. Um, They actually ran some of the schemes that Sean McVay has been running with the Rams as well, where, you know, with the pre-snap jet motions, the wide zones, and then maybe throwing a screen off of it or throwing a bootleg off of it. So now you're getting into second and fours, third and ones. They're advantageous downs that now you're able to maybe take a shot downfield. They're far more aggressive on offense than, than I think a lot of people would have thought. And I know that Russell Wilson had been pushing towards that um, this offseason, and, and it clearly looks like you know they, they really listened to him. So we have some clips as well for uh, from that Seattle game uh, when you're talking about McVay plays. Mm-hmm. And um, if you could describe that, uh, and that's uh, that's actually Cam Newton, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go back to this with Russell Wilson. When you talk about McVay plays, c- kind of break that down a lot. You know, is it just being aggressive on first down? Is it, is it, is is it the is it the condensed splits that you're talking about? What you know? What makes Sean McVay different, different than any than other any. wide open aggressive offensive scheme? So the condensed splits are a big part of it too, and so is the pre snap motion. So Sean McVay essentially has these mini packages and mini series that are built. Everything is built off of one another. So if you have a wide zone play with a jet motion, you also have a boot off of it. You have the, the play itself, the, the wide zone play, uh, the jet sweep, uh, and then maybe a screen off of it too. So there's really four plays out of it that a defense has to prepare for in that little structured mini series. So you see it with Seattle now too, that they ran it in the, um, in the Atlanta game, actually an identical play that the Rams ran later in the day on Sunday night versus the Cowboys, where it's a condensed split. They send a receiver in motion. They fake the wide zone or the outside zone action. And then the quarterback acts like he's going to boot back to the other side, sets up, throws back to the screen to the running back that he actually faked to. So it's a lot of eye candy and it's a lot of movement for a defense to try and figure out what it is. Because one time your linebacker is running towards the wide zone. The next time he's trying to chase down the jet sweep. The next time it's a boot. The next time it's a screen. So there's a lot of plays that are just built off of that. And especially when you get a guy like Russell Wilson that can, that can do some special things that, that also helps. Uh, one of the things uh, that they didn't do particularly well, because they didn't have to is run the football. I think uh, Wilson was their leading rusher were, I and I don't think I wrote it down, but I don't know, around 30 yards or something, 39 mm-hmm. yards, maybe something like that. Um, and for the Patriots as well, uh, Cam was their leading rusher. That's a different, uh, certainly a different animal with that offense over there. But uh, coming into this game with the defenses that they're now going to be faced with on either side of the football, um, do you see any changes in the running game? Because you were right about uh, the Seahawks. I think, on, and Brian Schottenheimer, I believe, is the offensive coordinator for uh, for the Seahawks. Uh, go Gators! Um, he, uh, I think, only on forty seven percent of uh, first down plays did he throw the ball normally, and I think they did it on thirteen of fourteen uh, on this. Uh, in this game against Atlanta, um, do you see them having to change that up? And will the ground game be more important? Because we saw last night in the Cleveland Cincinnati game, the inability to run and stop the run for Cleveland just really did the, uh, excuse me, Cincinnati really did them in in the game. 
Well, you know that Bill Belichick and the Patriots are always going to try and take away your number one threat. So with Russell Wilson being their number one that threat, and you heard such high praise from, from Belichick earlier this week, you know, who do they really try and take away? Do they try and take away DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett? Now, New England schematically plays a lot of man coverage on defense. They play a lot of cover one. They let their guys play. Now, they've also had some opt-outs with um, on the defensive side. So now does that change their structure defensively do they try and play more more quarters principles and, and play off and maybe that opens up the box more for some run game stuff I don't know because Bill Belichick changes his scheme weekly and it's almost like changing ghosts it's, it's like almost frustrating to watch New England because you know that you're not going to get the same look that you that you got the week before because he prepares so well for an individual team and notice, too, with, with Seattle, and this is a trend that you're going to see throughout the league, is two major things. The increase in 12 personnel, two tight end sets, and the increase in pre not motion, which is something which that is Seattle up their, their, their percentages on. So as the Seattle matriculates through the season, Derek, what do you anticipate defensive coordinators doing to try and slow down what you just described, which sounds impossible to stop. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of tough because, you, like I said, you heard Bill Belichick talk about such such high with such high praise with Russell Wilson, um, and it's kind of hard to stop a guy that you know. Okay, well, maybe we can play some 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 man coverage stuff, but the problem is when you play man coverage, your corners. Uh, backs and your defenders' backs are now turned to the quarterback. So if Wilson escapes the pocket, which he does not, he is not a runner. He is a scrambler. And he usually staves his big-time runs for the fourth quarter when it really, really hurts. And it's third and eight, and he scrambles, and he picks up nine, reaches the ball over, and defensive coordinators are pulling their hair out. So it's you really want to try and keep everything in front of you. And so you can see it. Now they do run a lot of rub routes and, and, and different things. And you might see them do, like I said, some more Sean McVay stuff. So who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe Bill Belichick sees that and tries to pull out the, the six one that he did against the Rams in the Super Bowl to try and stop it. And I don't know. I don't know that I would leave, you know, Russell Wilson to, to, to beat me. If that's the guy say, Oh, well, we're just going to stop the run. I think you got to try and stop Russell Wilson in that pass game first. And if Chris Carson beats you, he beats you. Well, one of the, only ways you can really stop Russell Wilson is not allow him on the field. So let's jump over to the yeah. offense for the Patriots. Uh, 75 yards, a couple of touchdowns by Cam on the ground. I think he threw for 155, 156 yards, no interceptions. I think not turning over the football certainly come. It, look, we can make that argument for every, every game. Um, but what are they going to have to do differently? Because I cannot imagine that the defense of the Seattle Seahawks, having seen what they saw on week one, is going to allow the quarterback draw to be to beat them in this game. So what are you expecting from New England to change things up, maybe to keep Russell Wilson off the field? Well, I think that uh, Josh McDaniels and Cam Newton, you know, I think that's, I think that's going to work there. Now, what you saw in the past game, at least, is very, very elementary, not elementary, but very, very simple in some of the schemes that they were doing for Newton. Keep in mind, he hasn't been there very long. So keeping some of the concepts that he knows and he's familiar with and that he has good timing with, with his receivers, those are the ones that they're the ones that they move forward with and, forward with and grow upon 
as the season goes on. Notice that they relied heavily on his legs too. Is that something that they can maybe do later in the season? Uh, I don't know that it's advantageous for them to do that where they want to run. I mean, they used a variety of concepts. They used zone reads, power reads, quarterback sweeps, quarterback traps, some RPO stuff. So what I don't know that you want Cam Newton carrying the ball 15 times like he did in Carolina during his MVP season. So I think the, the growth of the pass game and um, is something that, you know, we can uh, that we, to look for, especially versus Seattle, who, who their defense is flying around. I think w- what you saw with Pittsburgh last year when they think of Fitzpatrick and how that really, really, you know, pole vaulted them to being one of the better defenses in the league. I think you're going to see the same thing with, with, Jamal Adams in Seattle because, man, I mean, he's flying around everywhere, making backside tackles from the line of scrimmage. I mean, he's in the box playing the run game, and he's violent. So expect him to be in the box when, they, when they're trying to run the ball with Cam Newton and trying to pop him. So I have a bit of a chicken and egg question, though, about that Patriot offense, because you're right, rudimentary defense, uh, or excuse me, rudimentary passing game to, to an extent. Um, mm-hmm. Is that more, in your mind, because – Cam hasn't been there a long time. I mean, they're obviously learning each other. He and Josh McDaniels are learning each other. Or the old argument against what Tom Brady was given in the fact that they don't have the weapons to have necessarily an explosive passing game. No, and you didn't really see Cam Newton push the ball down the field that much. I think, the, the I mean, it was a lot of intermediate stuff, a lot of dig routes, crossing routes, off of play action. You didn't see him throw, you know, a deep post or you didn't see a lot of that. Um, So like I said, I think that that's something that grows throughout the year because there's limited training camp, no preseason games as well. So you, I think Belichick and that offense kind of treated this game. And I don't want to say it like this because it's Miami. And, and, but I think that it was kind of a preseason. Let's get the feet wet first start out slow, do what we do best and do it, do it very, very well. And I think that that's what they were focusing on. So you might be able to see it as the season progresses. Now there were some concepts that um, they had run with Brady. Um, if, if you guys have the clip or not, um, that that's something that they showed both last year and this year, it was essentially just an eye formation look, a quick play action fake, um, on an ISO or a dive kind of look and sending Edelman on a crossing route, which has been a staple of their offense for, for years. And as a Steelers fan, I had to watch Edelman catch the ball over and over and over and over again, over the middle off of that play action. Cause all it does is it sucks the linebackers towards the line of scrimmage that opens up that area between the safety and the linebackers. Usually. So, oh, I'm go sorry. Ahead, Mark. What, what, uh, what clip are we talking about? So we can try and the, play the, that. The ones that you had the from the Miami game and then the ones uh, the Steelers New England one. Those are both essentially the same type concepts and same type of scheme is what they're trying to accomplish. Okay, so how, how one was successful, one was not. Was that the one that you showed me? No, no, no. That was that was that was from the Steelers, the Daniel Jones one. <laughs> um, that was a coverage look, but but the Cam Newton one was was a uh, was a play that they had run. Um, numerous times last year with Brady and throughout the years. And then it had just popped up when they played Miami with Cam Newton um, on Sunday. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and switch games though. I mean, that that's a battle of two, uh, one and O teams. 
Um, here's a battle of a one and O team and an O and one team, the Rams and the Eagles. Um, am I, am I overstating it, Derek, to say this about this game? If the Eagles don't play better up front, this is the easiest lock of the week because their offensive line last week against Washington and Washington has talent up front. I think we saw Chase Young in his his debut, his wrecking crew. Ryan Kerrigan still got a lot in the tank. Washington up front is a pretty good is a pretty good football team. Um, the Rams up front have maybe the best player in football, and they can get they can get after you if they don't get help up front in some way. Is there is there anything the Eagles can do to win this game? I just don't see against that. Ram defensive line. I, I just see just another ugly day for Car- Carson Wentz. Well, now they did have success in the first half versus that front. I mean, they jumped out to a 17, nothing lead. So, I mean, they can do it. Um, it's just whether they can do it on a consistent basis throughout the longevity of a game, especially with Aaron Donald that is throwing guards into each other, like small children, um, which is terrifying as an offensive line coach looking at um, but no, they absolutely do. I mean, phrase is any given Sunday. And I think what you look with the Eagles is a lot of their past game stuff can be cleaned up. And it's very, very, it's not anything that's over the top crazy. They just seem to be off with timing here and there. I mean, the interception on the out route um, to, to Hightower, um, Wentz just left it inside the corner, was able to jump it. It was just a bad throw. The other one where he throws the the interception on the hitch, um, I believe it was Rieger that took the out route, or not the out route, the hitch route a little bit too far. I might have the name touch. Um, but he took the hitch too far, and the corner that was in the middle was able to come back and jump the ball. So it's just like little things. There was another one on the deep post that Rieger didn't come out of his post route. He's wide open, and he slows up out of the break. And Wentz ends up missing them. So they're really like, just, I mean, just that play right there could probably nail the game for them against Washington. Um, but, you know, just cleaning up those little things, he just missed those those easy NFL throws at times that are just, that should be layups. And and do you think there was something that, that shifted throughout the game? I mean, it was a 17-0 lead. And then there's 27 consecutive unanswered points. Obviously, the offensive line, obviously, the timing and accuracy, Wentz's, were successful at one point, and then suddenly not. Was it a mid, mid-game adjustment by Washington, or was it just Philadelphia losing steam? I think Philadelphia just kind of lost steam a little bit. Obviously, Washington made some adjustments, especially up front to be able to get more pressure on Wentz and disrupt some of the pass games and, and knock them down as well. But, I mean, they had a 17-point lead, and they walked out of that game with 50 passes and only, like, 17 rushes. Um, now, Doug Peterson is an extremely aggressive coach, and he's going to keep the, uh, the, the foot on the pedal there. So doesn't surprise me he defended his decision rightfully so um, that's his coaching style there's a lot of people out there that were criticizing hey why don't we run the ball more the same way that they criticized dan quinn when he didn't run the ball against new england in the Super Bowl. it's just it's just however that coaching style is 
Yeah, and I think uh, you, you make a good point. I think uh, Jack Del Rio, the defensive coordinator for uh, Washington, did a really nice job changing some things up. And uh, uh, on the other side of the ball, worrisome for uh, – the Eagles, in, in my mind, is that Dwayne Haskins, young quarterback, continuing to learn, obviously makes some mistakes. But really, um, once the defense for Washington settled down and kept Wentz off the field, uh, the Washington offense looked much better. The Haskins particularly looked a lot better. Any concerns for that uh, Philadelphia defense facing uh, a sophisticated Rams attack? Well, again, I mean, that's this is where I was talking about the whole 12 personnel stuff. And Philly, on the flip side, on their offensive side, does do a lot of 12 personnel. Um, and they're mainly 12 personnel with Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard. Um, but with, with the rise of 12 from, from the Rams as well, and I mean, they, they look they, like they look the like Super Bowl year Rams. I know that they only scored 20 points in that Dallas game, and they probably let, and they let some points out on the field as well. But – I thought that the, their efficiency, the way that Goff was able, he was on time on a lot of his throws. There was no indecision. They were playing fast. They had Dallas, you know, one step behind almost the entire game. Um, I, I think I think McVay kind of got his mojo back a little bit uh, with that game. So it will be interesting to see if that 12 personnel grows even more with Higby and Everett. Um, and then the addition of Van Jefferson, who who I've been high on, and they kind of mentioned in Hard Knocks as well. And I, you know, he made a big play in that Dallas game as well. So they they have some guys on the perimeter, and they have a tight end that they're actually using as kind of like a uh, their version of a Travis Kelsey in in Tyler Higby. So we're looking at a situation where Philadelphia is favored by one. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when we've just gone over and over about what their problems were on offense, and mm-hmm. you know what the uh, you know what the Rams did right on offense as well. So looking so at that Coast, line, the West Coast team coming from early exactly, early in that, the season, a one o'clock right. game that, that, that usually favors the East Coast team. It didn't with uh, Atlanta last week against Seattle. That's for no. sure, <laughs> and it may not this week with the Rams. The the NFC West. Uh, is looking very, very strong at the moment. There's no doubt about it. I, I, you know, what does Philadelphia need to do then uh, defensively? Let's start there to stop the Rams. And, and and what you know, what do they need to do to you know make sure that the Vegas odds makers are correct on this one? Well, I think that they need to control first down and not let Sean McVay dictate what the rest of that series looks like because you know the, he's. That goal of that offense is try to get Jared Goff into advantageous downs and distances where it's easy for him. He's not getting in third and nine situations where he's got to sit back in the gun and make decisions. You saw that last year when they struggled with the offensive line, and we talked about that before. Well, he didn't really get that really get in the in the Dallas game. He was in manageable situations. He was not asking to take over the game. So if, if um, if Dallas, or sorry, if Philadelphia is able to get to to the Rams early in the down and prevent some of those, you know, second and threes, third and ones, and maybe get them into a second and eleven or second and twelve, I think that that's where the advantage shifts towards towards Philadelphia's defense. All right, going to switch switch gears because we want to get through this third game, uh, the battle of two zero and one teams, and apparently, Mark, uh, following the national media narrative, in no matter what the Dallas Cowboys are on the record book, we have to talk about them week in and week out. Falcons and the Cowboys, one, Johnny. 
<laughs> the Falcons wasting a 450-yard Matt Ryan day. Um, more importantly, and I think, Derek, you could speak to this as, as, a, as a former quarterback, uh, spreading the football around, three receivers over 100 yards in that game, um, defensively struggling, starting slow under Dan Quinn is uh, something that this Falcon team seems to do year in and year out, though surprisingly they haven't gone 0-2 in the Quinn years, despite going one and four last year and one and seven the year before um, against a Cowboy team that I think defensively the Cowboys have to be relatively happy with what they did. To your point, the Rams left some points on the field uh, uh, probably as much as the Cowboys stopped them. Um, But the Cowboy offense, again, when it needed to not be anemic, was anemic. What do you see in in, in this game? Because, uh, you know, I'll I'll use the cliché. You start out 0 2, that can snowball on you. Yeah, absolutely. So from the from the Dallas offense, I think the biggest complaint was, you know, we talked about let Russ cook. Well, I, I think, you know, you gotta let Dak Prescott kind of take over the game too, especially in the early downs. That's that's kind of been the theme, right? Ta- taking control of the series early in the down with passes and getting yourself into to manageable second and third downs and you can really dictate what a defense does. I think the biggest complaint from, from at least Cowboy fans in the media was, well, this kind of looked like Jason Garrett's offense again. This is Kellen Moore still running the, running the show offensively. Um, and, but now to keep in mind, this kind of serves really, really well, this matchup for, for the Cowboys with, you know, Dak obviously playing extremely well, throwing on first down. Um, he had 10 yards per attempt on first downs for, through the first three quarters, which is against the Rams, which is pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, so he, but their second and third down average yards in the air or whatever uh, was only like four yards. So it wasn't as good. <laughs> so we, we want to get Dak er, involved early in the game, especially against um, a Falcons secondary that struggled against Russell Wilson. I mean, it didn't look like Russell Wilson was throwing any highly contested throws during that game. Um, I think the other thing too, with, with Dan Quinn playing a lot of the old Seattle style cover three. Um, you saw what Seattle did last week when they kind of went to on the Chris Carson touchdown, they went to a three by one set, they played cover three. And then what happens, I mean, we've talked about it on this show that, you know, when you get three receivers to one side, you get one receiver to the other. And typically in that look, you're going to play what we call lock lock coverage on the backside, number one receiver. So what happened in the Seattle game was they knew that the middle linebacker went to the field, to the three receiver side. They were able to slip a screen pass to Chris Carson on the backside and he walks in untouched. When you have a running back like Zeke Elliott that is able to catch the ball out of the backfield and make plays in the pass game, probably better than anybody else in the league. You could see that be a huge focal point for this Cowboys offense, especially with the perimeter weapons they have in C.D. Lamb and Gallup and and, and um, Amari Cooper. I should know his name. I have him in fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you would think that they are loaded and ready to bear, you know, w- with that kind of uh, offensive power power. You would think that it did seem anemic to your point. And it's, you know, they're going against a defense. You're right. That made Russell Wilson look like he was Russell Wilson, you know, a, a Florida, Florida quarterback in the nineties where you could just throw it to anyone in the middle of the field. There's no one near, uh, but if you to John's point, if the Cowboys lose, they're zero two. They finished the season last year five and eight. 
So that means so right now they're five and nine in their last fourteen. If they lose again, they may not be a very good team inexplicably, even though they're loaded with talent. Is that possible? I mean, is 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 that realistic? In other words, to call them basically what they are have been for the last full season—a very mediocre to bad team. I get hard to say that they are because of all the talent that they had. And then you look at some of the injuries that they've had to deal with as well. Van Der Esch is going to be out. I, I don't know if it's a season or not, but the collarbone injury, Sean Lee is out. So now they're extremely depleted at the linebacker spot. They're depleted. They're losing offensive linemen. Their secondary was a question. So now it's kind of starting to snowball a little bit where, okay, who are the guys that are walking out there and who are the guys that are on paper? And who are the guys that are able to stay on the field as well? I think that's the biggest thing. They're kind of a little bit snake bitten, kind of how the, the Philadelphia Eagles are. They do still, they are still in that division. So you technically go eight and eight, probably win that division. Um, <laughs> the undefeated but, Washington football team, though. The undefeated Washington football team. The the undefeated first place football team. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The Washington first place team should be all their alone. New name. Latest but, in the season yeah. in about a decade that they've been in first place. So. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I think like this is a, a game that that Dallas probably bounces back. Um, I agree, especially versus that secondary, and and I probably and I think it's going to be a high scoring game. I think this is a thirty five thirty one kind of game, and I think that that's what Atlanta has to do um, because they these are two teams with high flying offenses with loaded with talent and defenses that are, that are kind of banged up or struggling, especially on the back end. Well, I think Lenny Rowe, always the man with the statistics and he's a green Bay fan. So he always has a good statistic saying Mike McCarthy's three and one after a week one loss. And as I mentioned under Dan Quinn, even though the Falcons start out slow, one and four last year, one and seven, uh, the year before they've never gone. zero and two. And mm-hmm. in that division, 0-2 may just do you in in the NFC South if you, if you start out um, 0-2. It's going to be a, a, a really, really interesting matchup. Also, you mentioned you know Kellen Moore still running the offense for the, for the Dallas Cowboys. And Mike McCarthy is notably a conservative coach as well. So allowing Dak to be Dak may be a little more difficult for him um, because he was accused of not doing that with Aaron Rodgers from time to time. Who and that was a team that obviously didn't have the weapons that Dallas had. Yeah, um, uh, yeah it's it, it it's as interesting a matchup as there is between zero and one teams. As much as I hate to talk about the Dallas Cowboys, Derek, as always, we 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 couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much. How are things before we let you go up there at the Coast Guard Academy? Uh, they're great. You know, we're practicing twice a week. Uh, we were able to get the pads on yesterday, so that was pretty exciting. Guys were guys are really pumped up about that, and I was too for them. Um, like I said, practicing two times a week. I mean, we're just trying to get as much we can out of this and and whatever happens going forward, you know, our guys will be ready. If we got to play next week, next year, next month, whenever it is, um, our guys are just happy to get out there and play football. And I'm, I'm happy to be doing the same thing. So get to do football. It's it's an easy life when all you get is football. Yeah. Yeah, I should be so lucky. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go do yard work here in a few minutes. Um, well, thanks so much. And by the way, I thought your, your timely Larry Fitzgerald uh, comment on Facebook that I think I commented on Larry Fitzgerald showing uh, last week why mm-hmm. veterans 
are really, really important if you want to be a championship team. And, and as much as I would like to talk about uh, uh, Arizona and Washington, I think the best game of the week, uh, Mark decided unilaterally that that was not going to happen. So, Derek, thanks as always, man. Hopefully uh, we'll see you within the next couple of weeks again, breaking down some stuff. Sounds good. Let me know whatever, guys. Appreciate All right. it. Thank, Thank you, Derek. You Appreciate much. it, buddy. Boy, I tell you what, Mark, uh, he took the words right out of my mouth about Atlanta. You look at them, and I know it's week one and we overreact, but uh, I think Matt Ryan is going to put up uh, Pro Bowl statistics. I think they are going to be in a lot of shootouts, and I think they're probably going to go 6-10 and 10, unless they can shore well, up that, that defense. Again, we're talking about a Dallas Cowboys team that they face, and Derek's talking about a shootout as the only way Dallas can win that game because Dallas's defense, because of injuries and the like, is pretty civ-like as well. And I think most Dallas fans think they're going to have to outscore Atlanta. And good luck based right. on how Matt Ryan's doing. If it's 35-30, that means Dak and that offense have to put up 35. That would just twice as many points as they had in week one. Well, I'm telling you, if 65 is the is the number on that, I might take the over, quite frankly, uh, having seen w- what we did. Though that Dallas defense, again, last week certainly um, showed me more than that Atlanta defense did. All right, let's jump back to our progressive trivia before we move on to the NBA and the NHL. Looking for Major League Baseball player past or present. Here we go with our first set of clues for our Major League Baseball player. Hmm. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm waiting for the slide. We become beholden to our visual aspects. You know, I'm just going to read this first set of clues. I think you just should. Here it is. Well, here it is. I spent 20 plus seasons in the majors. Career numbers: 280 wins, 300, uh, 3.31 ERA, 3,700 plus strikeouts. Played for five teams. Won a World Series in both leagues. Next set of clues. I'm a two-time All Star. I've pitched a no-hitter, played with Rod Carew and Burke Campanaris. How about that? Postseason, five wins and a 2.47 ERA mark. So a guy who, we talked we talked about, uh, you know, guys who are compilers and guys who step up. And in, in, in many ways, this guy with over 20 years in Major League Baseball compiled a lot of great statistics, but a 2.47 ERA in the postseason is, uh, is nothing to sneeze at. You don't think of this guy as a dominant postseason pitcher. You don't really think of him as a dominant pitcher uh, overall. You think of it, to your point, as a compiler. I can't get away from saying that, by the way. I know. To your point. You love it. And uh, it is very interesting with this guy. The, his postseason success, to me, has been buried in the story of this particular pitcher. Yep. All right. So uh, no guesses yet. So uh, get let's, I couldn't be any happier. If you don't get any guesses on the first first set of clues. No, I know. Feel, You're happy right now. Feel pretty good about yourself. Feel pretty good about yourself. All right. Let's switch. Uh, let's switch gears to the NBA and the NHL, Mark. Let's start with the NBA with the Miami Heat coming up. Put with a, Eric Spolster in the Hall of Fame is all I have to say. We can move on. Well, let me let me say I thought of you, Jeff, uh, quite a bit, which disturbs me on a number of levels. But uh, I thought about uh, because Eric Spolster was getting a lot of love uh, broadcaster wise uh, yesterday and in the media. And I think rightfully so. 
Uh, I know Mark feels otherwise. He's making a face. If you're not, if you're listening to the podcast, I am, he's making I am a not sour making a face. face. I am not making a face. There is no, there is nothing sour about what I just said about the Hall of Fame. I think Eric Spolster, now that I've looked at the overall career of this guy and the fact that he's taking a team no one expected to get past the first round in the playoffs, if, if even make the playoffs, uh, two games away from being in the NBA championship, that is quite a feat. He's getting people to play that have not had great careers thus far also. Yeah, yeah, they I mean they just do seem undermanned talent wise, but man, they play uh they play uh they're playing together as well as any team. I think Jeff as well as any team in the playoffs right now. I this is not the first time that I have been the driver of a bandwagon. I uh, I'm at the wheel of many a bandwagon and the uh, Spolstra bandwagon is one I'm proud to man. Uh I you have to you ha- I mean you can look at a at a general manager level and say that the GM is bringing in good players but I don't think that's the case with this team. I think they're well coached. I think he's getting the most out of the talent that those guys have and uh, when they the I think I think that Eric Spolstra I think what you can really look at is Hassan Whiteside, a guy that had a lot of upside and it wasn't working in Eric Spolstra's system so they moved him on. And bam, literally, bam, right behind him, Bam Adebayo is a guy who went right into that position and is clearly getting better results. We should mention that Tom Marino, uh, Tommy Marino has guessed the progressive trivia. So I feel it's kind of a push today. Kind of a push with the progressive trivia. Nice work, Tommy. Um, I also think that for whatever reason, I think that um, the bubble and the tournament-like aspect of this thing really benefited the Miami Heat. I, I, really, I, I think I, I think because you know you come into the fifth seat, you're not getting a lot of discussion about uh, about the Heat. Um, people knew that the East was not as good, not going to be good enough a run as the West. I think maybe. Uh, having less tread off their tires throughout a, in, a, in a shorter season and playing in a, in a tournament style in the bubble um, is just a, it, it, to me. And this is just having played sports on undermanned, not very talented teams that sometimes could step up. Um, I, I just think it's the type of thing where you can, if you're a good coach, you can you can circle the wagons and rally your troops to something like this. I mean, I understand that point of view. I think that's a valid point. You, it, uh, the, I think the best it helps thing an underdog, it is, I think, in some ways, I think it's, it, the, it's it that tournament them. mentality. I think is is a good point. It's like let's just win our fourteen, sixteen games, whatever it, they need to win to win a championship, and that's all they have to focus on. Let's win those sixteen games. Now, now having, having said that, they're ten and one in the playoffs right now. Ten. And one. Yep. With uh, Jimmy Butler's never looked this good. Uh, You're right. You know, Goron. How do you pronounce his name? Goran Dragic. Dragic is playing out of his mind. There is. Right now. Eric Spoltra is ninth all time in playoff wins. Ninth. And so he's got to be given some credit. Now, granted, those four years with LeBron. He got a lot of those victories. He piled up about 16 or 17 in each of those. But the fact that he's got them 10 and 1, two games away from the finals, uh, is highly impressive. And you have to look at his overall record. Ninth all time in playoff wins. I mean, that that is 
That is pretty impressive. And oh, by the way, if you look at NBA coaches and you look at the top 25 NBA coaches, only like a handful of them are dead. No, no, it's weird. Bill Fitch, I thought, was dead 10 years ago. Dick Mata, I thought, was dead a decade and a half ago. These guys are I tell alive. you, I was coming out of Ciro's in L.A., and I thought I'd seen a ghost. It was Dick Mata, and quite frankly, I thought Mata had passed away years ago, given the fact that he treated his body like a rodeo. I tell you, I went to a buffet with Dick Mata once. You don't want to get your hands near him because model take your arm off trying to get to a slice of rare roast beef. Yeah, there's Lopes. He's going to try to bunt, but he misses the bunt. Steps <laughs> out. Lopes. Always Davy Lopes. It is always Davy Lopes. Sorry, that, was a, that, that wasn't even a really good one. I've been listening to all these Vin Scully. I, I went down a rabbit hole of listening to Vin Scully, and it has not improved my uh, my Vin Scully impersonation. I, I apologize to all of you for that. Can we switch gears uh, real quickly? Uh, because I'm 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 struggling to get all my. Uh, this entire thing in, in an hour and five minutes. Uh, by the way, again, Tom Marino, congratulations, did have the answer. It is not, for those uh, other guesses, it's not Roger Clemens, not Nolan Ryan. It is uh, the person Tom Marino picked. And by the way, and 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 Tom uh, being a little passive aggressive because, you know, he's like, sorry, but I just logged on. As if, you know, hey, I'd have been here earlier. I'd have gotten it for the first set of clues, so. You know, all right, Tommy. I hear you. I and hear and you. part part of that ten minutes, and I'm I'm sorry, John, that I I'm I might be um, helping to blow your chances of an hour show. But he ha- asked about the Giants' playoff possibilities. They are like seventh seeded. They're a game over five hundred. We've, but Tom, I'm not allowed to talk. John, I'm not. I'm only allowed to make cursory references to anything San Francisco at this point in time. I, even I if even if current sporting events demand it. I, I can, and let me tell you this: only in what seems to be an apocalypse can Gabe Kapler take a team to the playoffs. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think it's what I said earlier, uh, Jeff. It's it's about Gabe Kapler. You look at the Phillies the last two years in eighteen and in nineteen; they started off hot. They faded in September, but September in eighteen and nineteen was games one thirty through one sixty two, or one thirty five through one sixty two. They're only on game 49 right now. So Gabe's M.O. is holding true. Yeah, Good. yeah, yeah. It yeah. took an apocalypse for him to only have to play 60 games. Therefore, he could make the playoffs. And I bet you he wins the World Series because he doesn't start to drop off until after that many games. I mean, that's the truth. And that's All what right. I said from the top. I said the Giants might have a shot this time around. Who knows? Oh, could have saved this for the potpourri. Probably should have been a potpourri discussion. All right. Uh, real quickly, uh, let's get to the NHL. The uh, Tampa Bay Lightning uh, punched their ticket to the NHL finals by defeating a gritty and uh, after further review favorite New York Islanders team. And- Two out of three. Two out of three favorite. I was not a fan of the Islanders the entire time. Really? You just, just contrary. Just want to be contrary. No, I, I, I didn't want them to beat my Flyers. I also... Just don't like the cut of their jib. To oh your God. to your phrase, the only thing gave me a soft spot later on was realizing the same coach of the Islanders, coach you know Barry Trotman, whatever the heck his name is. Barry Barry uh, Trotman, uh, coach coach the Capitals. This so, is just, you know I understand why you guys have love for the Islanders. Outside of that, I have no idea why you are embracing them. Uh, well. Let me say this. the I know they're not in the playoffs anymore, and they should not be spoken of, but the Capitals did now hire 
the last coach of the Nashville Predators, which is what they did before they went on to win a cup with Barry Trotz. So yeah, Peter Peter Laviolette, the head coach of the Washington Capitals. I, I, I like that signing as well. Um, I'll just say this. Very Trotsky. Uh, very Trotsky. It's not Trotsky. As much as I would like it to be. It's not Trotsky. As much as that would be cool. Name, though, I've got the. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so just just really quickly, I mean, I, I do think the best team won in, in this series. I think Tampa is a better team. Um, and the Islanders, uh, Varlamov bailed them out a few times. Uh, and they had to play so many overtime games. Um, the question that I have, uh, Dallas a little more rested coming into this series. Um, I think all things being equal, I would say I would take Tampa in the series. But I, I, I think there's a little more tread off the, the Lightning's tires than there are uh, than there are the Dallas Stars. So I would say I would make Dallas a slight favorite coming into the finals. I, I hate saying this, but I think Vasilevsky, Vasilevsky is going to be the reason that Tampa wins this thing, and I do not like the Lightning. But I feel like he is in between those pipes, and I think actually not having the rest is going to benefit him. Could be, could be. That's that's a that's a really good point because a lot of times you do see that in the in the Stanley Cup playoffs because that's such a condensed season unto itself that sometimes the rest you'll you'll cool off a little in the rest. It's it's going to be an interesting series, I think. They were the two best teams left standing in the, in these conference finals, um, and uh, you know Tampa Bay's been hanging around for a long time with uh, with a lot of talent and uh, the, their size and speed. It's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be a really fun matchup. All right, uh, let's get back to our progressive trivia because um, we're gonna talk more about the Stanley Cup Finals in future shows. But we want to. Uh, Tom Marino has ruined it for me, but not everyone else. That didn't really ruin it. Again, second set of clues. 20-plus seasons in the majors. Career numbers, 280 wins, a 3.31 ERA, and 3,700-plus strikeouts. Played for five teams. Uh, won a World Series in both leagues. Set of clues. Two-time All-Star. Pitched a no-hitter. Played with my favorite baseball player of all time, Rod Carew, and the great Burt Campanaris. In the postseason, has five wins and a 2.47 ERA. So that's again almost a almost a full point mark below uh, where he is in the regular season. Yeah, regardless of what you what you do in the regular season, John two point four seven ERA is outstanding postseason ERA. Sure is. I led the AL in shutouts three times. I'm in the Hall of Fame. I was born in the Netherlands, and I think I spelled Netherlands wrong actually. Uh, Maybe not, though. I'm not good at spelling. And I was a member of the family. I was family. Which, fa- which one of the five families? Which one was he a member of? Uh, the Costello. The Costello family. I'll tell you, he was, uh, he was with Barzini. He, he would have been, uh, yeah, in The Godfather. He would have been more like a, he, he would have been like a Tom uh, in, in The Godfather. The uh, Tom, uh, what's his name? The Duval. Yeah. Yeah. Is that sort of a has that sort of a Tom Hagen, Tom Hagen. Yeah, is that sort of countenance about him? And I interviewed. Yeah, no doubt uh, about it. Three times leading the league in shutouts, John. That's also something I would never have guessed from this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a couple of other uh, really, really good uh, statistics that I didn't throw into this, but uh, good player. All right, let's move on to our potpourri section of the show, and uh, 
Here is what uh, we, we brought up the Rays clinching. I think we can skip over that. U.S. Open's going on this weekend, Mark. And I, I you know, I tuned in because Tiger, because Tiger. Um, uh, probably going to tune out because no Tiger. Yeah. Eh, probably will continue to wing, wing, watch it because Wingfoot is a uh, is a difficult golf course. Last time we saw the Open there was Phil Mickelson coming to the 18th tee, I believe, with a two-shot lead and losing the tournament there with two of the worst shots you'll ever see in uh, by a professional golfer. Um, I, my question is this, Mark. Tiger Woods still moves the needle more than anybody in professional golf. What would we have to have? Who could ever come along to move the needle more? Because you started out with Tiger because there, there's obviously the race thing because there hadn't been a lot of uh, uh, African-Americans uh, who had, well, certainly no one, that type of success that he had, the Nicholas-like success he had for a long time. But all these other guys who step up, um, it, it just doesn't push the needle as much. Well, I think part of it is the ra- I think the race thing, the fact that he was the first person of color to have that kind of success is not really the story because he's the first person to have that kind of success since Jack Nicholas. That's what's going to move the needle, John. The, the fact that he was a person of color made it that much cooler of a and story. And he was very young, too. I mean, he was so young, too. Well, when Jordan Spieth came out of the gate hot, when Rory yeah. McIlroy got a, came out of the gate hot, everyone was ready to jump on those guys. And they couldn't sustain the excellence. And maybe it's because the field is so mu- so much more competitive these days. Everyone is in shape. You know, 90% of the, the golfers, the equipment is where it's at. The the courses have made adjustments and players that come out of the gate so strong. And I, Spieth and McElroy come to mind. Brooks Kepka maybe a little bit uh, this time around. But if you have a player that wins three majors in two years or five majors or five in three years, then that person's going to start moving the needle. One way or the other, you're going to have people rooting for that guy or and people inevitably like you, John, don't root for greatness, rooting against that guy. I always rooted for Tiger. Well, I know you did. I know you did. That was the exception to to the greatness rule for you. But I think that's what it's going to take, John. And it just, it just hasn't happened. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think you're underplaying a little bit of the cultural impact for people of color when they finally saw uh, someone like that. I, I think that did have something to do with it. And that, of course, you know, we're, we're not going to see that again because we that that's already been covered. But, uh, boy, you're asking <laughs> you're asking a lot from anybody to move the needle at this point. Um, and sadly, I just don't see that happening. You're, you what you're asking for, in my mind. Um, for somebody to bring golf back to the level that it was in Tiger's heyday, um, I, 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 you know, that it may be more than a generational talent. You're just win some, yeah, exactly. You know, you just just have that kind of success. And yes, the fact that Tiger was a person of color and the first African American, you know, in golf. I mean, that obviously those stories added to the lore and to the legend. There's no doubt about it. Added to the uh, actually the divisiveness that Tiger brought to the game. And also, well. and also, you you know, when you have somebody like that who is who's that popular, you need a foil in some way. And he was lucky to have Phil Mickelson, I think, for a good period yeah. of time as a foil because you know Jack Nicholas had that early with Arnold Palmer. And then Tom Watson. I mean, we talk about these. There, there, there was always a good, um, and whether or not it actually was true, you seemed like these guys were battling it out for for uh, 
for in tournaments week in and week out um, in the final pairing. It wasn't necessarily true, but I think you need something like that as well. And Joe Conley coming with Brooks Kepka. Eh, I, I, I know. I meh. mentioned I mentioned Kepka as well in terms meh. of early success. I agree with you. I'm not a fan, but he had he had a chance to. There has to be a charisma as well. And Brooks Kepka is a great golfer. I'll take nothing away from him. To move the needle, there needs to be, you know, we look at a Greg Norman, actually, who is a guy who famously collapsed in those tournaments, but he moved the needle. Um, and uh, I, again, I think you're asking for a more than once in a generational player. And I don't I know where right. that we're going to see that. All right. Uh, I am. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm six minutes away from from my goal, Mark Ferreira. Um so I, I think I, we I can, do have I do have a thing about college football in potpourri. There's been uh, Baylor, Texas, Baylor, yes. Houston is the seventh game now right. for week three to be canceled. So I don't know why I'm not reading dominoes from you anymore, John. Maybe it's because you're rooting for college football, unlike you were rooting for baseball and and some of the other sports. But I'm 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 it seems I'm, like college football is handling it. You know, not quite. A, I mean, they're canceling the game, so well, but, but they're having a lot more problems than the other sports. I, and I think, but but I think we all coming into it kind of expected that because of the on campus things and and the and the lack of uh, control that you can have in those situations versus with yeah. the professional athletes. Um, you know, what are you going to do with the college kids? Just threaten to take away their scholarships, I guess, if they if they're not following protocol. Yeah, so maybe. I think probably I'm not dominoing it because I'm 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 not really surprised. I thought this was what we would deal with, and we'll see moving forward. They've rescheduled the Virginia Virginia Tech game for December now. They do have a little bit of uh, leeway on the back end. It's going to be interesting how all of this affects what bowl games we're going to see this year. Because I think Mark, you're going to be very very happy because I think there will be fewer of them. And that will make you incredibly happy. It will. It really will. Right. We we needed to we needed to uh, eliminate about a third of them, and I'm and it may happen this year, and that makes me very happy. All right, let's talk locks and shocks then before we jump back to our progressive answer, Mark. Locks and shocks this week. Um, I, I, I I'm just going to tell you right now. I was going to go uh, with something different, but when you told me that the Eagles were a one point favorite, uh, there's my shock. I, I mean, straight up, I just don't, I do not see that. Even with Lane Johnson coming back and some of the things Derek talked about that they did well, I just don't believe that with what the Rams can do um, up front I, and that beat up offensive line, I, I, I think that's tough. I think that's a tough ask. So that would be my shock. And I don't think they allow and people can correct me here, but I don't think they're allowing fans at Lincoln Financial. So I can't, I can't, I can't keep track of who's I, allowing I can't fans either, but I, I just figure I just figure as pat as this is, is that if you're a, if you're a team playing in a blue state, and I hate to bring that up, but I'm just I just figure you fans aren't allowed. And if you're yeah. a team playing in a red state, then they'll be, you know, a fourth, 25% or 30%. You know, it's 25%. possible. I'm going to change that. I'm not going to make it my shock. I'm going to make it my lock. That's my lock, Mark. Well, of course, Philly is favored by one. So your lock is that Philly will win? No, my lock is that my lock, as a lock, they're going to lose. That's it. I'm, I'm not, don't even worry about the points. My lock is I see that the Rams are going to win that football game. All right, very good. Don't, don't even worry about the points. I won't. 
Uh, even though that is against the name of the game, but I, I get it. You I know? don't believe that's against the name of the game. I never, I, I thought the lock was what we were saying was a lock was. Now, see, now we're, we're going to go over because of this. The lock was is a game where I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you straight up, take this. It's a lock. What's going to happen? Yes. But that, normally with a lock, you say they're going to, you know, the person, the team that's favored is going to win. We don't need to go down this. I understand what you mean. Your lock is that Philadelphia gets upset by yeah, technically upset. Wrong. By, by the L.A. Rams. My lock is Chicago beating New York. I think Chicago uh, may have a pretty decent team this year. I like the fact that Foles is on the bench. I think it's making Trubisky perhaps play better. This is all based on one week, obviously. Well, of course. Yeah. And they all have a confidence that if something happens, that Foles can take over and take him to the Super Bowl because that's what he does as a backup. So uh, I think Chicago is going to be play better than we thought they were, and I think New York is going to play as well as we thought they would. And so I think Chicago uh, locks this particular game on Sunday. All right, and uh, my shock, because I, honestly, I, I decided this week I wasn't going to put any time into this. I was just going to go with first blush, and I know I changed up because I was going to do a different game for that, but I just, I still do, I have no idea why you would make the Eagle. I know it's a West Coast team at coming East, um, but my shock is going to be for this week. I do believe that, um, I believe that uh, Minnesota is going to beat Indianapolis. There you go. Okay, that's a pretty good one, I think. I think that's a pretty good one. I think Minnesota uh, is going to be just fine. Still surprised what, that Indianapolis is a, is a favorite team in this. I'm, I'm surprised I, they're favored, frankly. I am too, but I think Indianapolis has some has some talent, and I think up front they've. I mean, uh, on the defensive front, they've got some talent. They can get to, um, they can get to Kirk Cousins. Uh, they've got DeForest Buckner now, remember, from the 49ers. But I like that. I think uh, Minnesota is not going to go 0-2. I think that makes a lot of sense. They're a good team despite Packers. I think, I think Philip Rivers is who you think he is yeah. as well. Just Might kind play of, well enough to get you beat Yes, at this point in his career. I, no, I really do. I, I really do I, because I, I saw those bad interceptions that even yeah. in week one, I don't think veteran quarterbacks should be thrown. That's, yeah. that's me. Yeah, I, I – I tend to agree with you, John. Okay. My shock is Miami over Buffalo. How about that? They're coming down to Miami. Hot. That's Man. always tough for a northern team. I think Miami showed some grit last week. They lost the game, but they showed some grit. And I think Buffalo, Josh Allen's performance, Stefan Diggs' performance, uh, is was highly noteworthy last week, but I think there will be some adjustments made. And I think okay. that's going to be a nice upset for the Dolphins. I, I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily opposed to that either. I think that that makes a great deal of sense. It really does. Um, you know, we could, here's the thing too. Miami's got some film on Josh Allen and Buffalo. Nobody knew what Cam Newton and the Patriots were going to do. Right. And that's a tough ask on Week One against a former MVP who has a bunch of talent and the best coach in football. And it certainly wasn't a blowout um, in any any way, shape, or form. Uh, I like that. I like that pick. I really do. Tom Marino believe in Brady going to go 0-2. I know. That's How about thought. that? How about That's that? His thought. Um, all right. Going to move on to then our uh, answer for our progressive trivia as I am Speaking one minute over. I'm one minute over, and I feel horrible about it. All right. Here are your clues. 20-plus uh, seasons in the majors, career 280 wins, 3.31 ERA, 3,700-plus strikeouts. 3,701, by the way strikeouts just just one over i like uh, it 
I like using a plus for a, for a one. Yeah. 3,700. That's yep. well done. Well, played for good, five good teams, game. though made six moves because he played for one team, the Twins, twice, which was the team he came up with. Won a World Series in both leagues for the aforementioned Minnesota Twins and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Two-time All-Star. Pitched a no-hitter. Played with Rod Carew and Burt Campanaris. I believe Campanaris he played with in Texas, if I'm not incorrect in that. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Postseason numbers, five wins and a 2.47 ERA. Money pitcher in the postseason, this guy. Led the AL in shutouts three times. I'm in the Hall of Fame. I was born in the Netherlands. I was family, sadly. Uh, and the answer is Burt Blylevin. And you'd forgotten that Burt Blylevin went back to Minnesota in the late 80s uh, after winning in 79 with uh, the Pirates and won another World Series on yeah. that 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 uh, that less than memorable year, 1987. Would you agree? That's one that kind of slips by the wayside. Well, I remember it well because the giants for the first time since 1971 made the playoffs. And that's okay. a 16 year drought. They were up three games to two against the Cardinals in the NLCS went back to St. Louis. John Tudor shot them out in game six. And then they got blown out in game seven, bummed me out completely. So I was really rooting hard for the twins who, did not perform as well as the Tigers that year, who had a great year with Sparky Anderson, and the Twins uh, upset the Tigers. And then that was the, uh, just like in 1991, in 1987, another, you know, the other year that the Twins won. In 1987, the home team won every game. Mm. So that's awesome as well. And I enjoyed watching Whitey Herzog go nuts for the second time in three years. Wow. See, I just am not a good human. Oh, no. Well, that that goes without saying. All right. So congratulations again to, to Tom Marino for getting that correct. All right. I am uh, I am a couple of minutes over, but we are at the close. Anything else you'd like to add coming into this weekend, Mark? Uh, just quickly about the deep dive on Wednesday. It's 1968. Some fun things about 1968. Joe Frazier ha- had, quote unquote, the heavyweight title for a while, but it was really kind of funky the way they had it once they stripped Ali of the title uh in the previous year uh you also have a a boston celtics los angeles lakers final you know you have uh the canadians winning in hockey and it was the end of the first season of expansion remember 1967 was expansion so 67 68 was the end of that first year lots to talk about can't wait uh all the other topics that we talked about last episode as well so that's wednesday coming up deep dive 10 that's great Sounds like a lot of fun. We will uh, we will look forward to it again. That is uh, next Wednesday. We will be back on Monday um, to talk about to overreact to everything we see in week two. And I tell you, I'm really interested to see because, again, we have no template. There's no blueprint for what this season is like. And Derek making the point, Derek Abbott making the point that, you know, Joe Burrow looked really, really good not having played a preseason game. Seriously. We, you know, so um, as we come into week two, I still think week two is kind of like week one in the NFL that we know less. We may know less this week than we did last week because we believe that last week is educating us. And I don't believe that's true. I'm not even really certain what that last sentence was, but I want to end the show on that. For Mark Ferrer and Jeff Taylor, I'm John Pelkey. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you on Monday, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.